Well, friends, today is an exciting day, at least for the preacher. We're beginning a new sermon series today in the book of Colossians, and we're calling this series Rooted in Christ, and that comes from something that Paul says in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He, he writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And, and that really is our prayer for us as a church, as we study Colossians, that, that our lives would become more firmly rooted in Jesus Christ. That our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of God's love, of the grace of Jesus Christ, of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit would, would grow. As, as we look at the, the wonderful things that, that we find here in the book of Colossians. And, and not only that we would be rooted in Christ, but as a result, as, as the gospel takes deeper root in our lives, that it would bear fruit. And, and we're going to see something about that this morning in our passage. And, and that, that our lives would increasingly look like um, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul while he's imprisoned for preaching the gospel. He's probably under house arrest in Rome. And he writes to a a group of Christians in a city called Colossae in what is what we know today as Turkey. And Paul had never met these Christians. He didn't plant this church. In fact, one of his colleagues did, a man named Epaphras, who appears in our passage today. And apparently, Epaphras had come to Rome and visited Paul and, and gave, told him about this church. And just like any local church today, there were good things to report, but there were also concerns. And these new Christians, they were being tempted to displace Christ from the center of their faith and life. Not to completely abandon Christ, although maybe some of them were tempted that way, but to, to minimize Christ. And we'll get into the specific issues they faced as we work our way through the letter. But in a nutshell, they were tempted to question whether Jesus is enough. Is Jesus really an all-sufficient Savior, or do we need something more? Is there some other scheme, some other path of spirituality we need to go down to find fullness and and life. And in their case, the false teachers were saying, well, you need a little bit of Jesus, and you need a lot of Jewish religious practices and and pagan spirituality and, and other such things. You know, throw them all in a blender, mix them together, and that's the path to a meaningful and satisfying life. And the way Paul deals with this, this problem, these concerns, is really masterful. And this is why Colossians is still relevant to us today. He, Paul paints a portrait of Christ that is, is really astounding. It, it really takes your breath away. And, and Paul, in essence, says, look, friends, Christ isn't simply an appendage to your faith. He's everything. Uh, life and fullness and flourishing and meaning and purpose and, and security both in the present and for the future is all found in Christ. 
and in Christ alone. And so what Paul does here in Colossians is says, let me tell you about this Jesus. And that's what he does for four chapters. And it's not a very long book, and I encourage you as you're able to read through it regularly over the coming weeks. Um, You could probably do it in 15, 20 minutes, depending on how quickly you read. But, But we really want this letter to get inside of us. And so for the next several months, we're going to be listening to what Paul tells us about our glorious and all-sufficient Savior. Today we're looking at the opening of the letter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. You can find that on page 983 in the Pew Bible, or if you want to follow along in your own Bible, you can turn there now. I'm going to read the passage for us, and then I'll pray. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, as we come to your word this morning, we're conscious of our need for your help. We we want to come to your word as your word, not just a, a book, not just a, a piece of information, but your your living word. Would you cause us to see the glories of our Savior and his gospel? Would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to receive your truth this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Colossians begins the way just about any other letter in the ancient world began. Paul identifies himself as the sender along with uh, a person we're familiar with, his his colleague Timothy. And then comes the recipients. He, he says to the saints, that is to God's people, to the saints and faithful brothers in, Col- in Christ at Colossae. And then this wonderful greeting, which uh, is not just a throwaway. It's really, in a sense, a, a pronouncement of blessing, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then Paul launches into an extended thanksgiving and prayer for the church beginning in verse 3, and really it's, it's a description of what he gives thanks for, a description of how he prays for this church. And in verses 3 to 8, Paul thanks God that, that this church in Colossae is a growing church. It's, it's alive. It's vibrant. It's bearing fruit. Now, we need to realize the way Paul measures church growth and the way we typically think about such things are quite different. You know, we tend to focus on things that can be easily measured. You know, attendance numbers, 
um, budget, participation in programs. But Paul, you know, he almost completely disregards those things. There's barely any mention of those kinds of metrics in Paul's letters and, and even here in Colossians. You see, what, what Paul's interested in is gospel growth. That, that's what gets Paul excited. And what I mean by gospel growth is, is the gospel taking root in people's lives and transforming them. Uh, that's what really moves Paul to thanksgiving. That's how he measures growth. You know, are people hearing the gospel? Are people responding to the gospel and, and growing as it, as it gets down inside of them and they begin to, to understand the, the implications of, of the gospel for their lives? That's gospel growth. And we've been walking through a difficult season as a church. Many other churches um, have as well. We're coming up on the two-year anniversary of this great pause to life as we've known it. And at our elder meeting this past week, we, we worked on finalizing plans to, to relaunch Grace Kids and Adult Sunday School, as Craig mentioned during the announcements. And, and Lord willing, and I really do mean that, Sometimes we just throw that in there because it's the Christian thing to say. But Lord willing, we'll restart on February 6th. And I say Lord willing because we've tried this numerous times and have had to postpone. If my memory is correct, we have not met for adult Sunday school since March 8th, 2020. It's a long time. And these two years, you know, I think for many of us have felt like a, a time of stagnation. You know, they haven't, they really haven't been. That in truth, but it's felt that way. And now it seems like we're, we're slowly starting to emerge from this season. Um, uh, I know that the last few weeks haven't felt like that <laughs> as, we, as COVID's kind of worked its way through our church. But, but hopefully in the coming months, you know, we're able to move forward. And, and I'm hopeful that we're moving into a new, a new season of growth. And, and I don't mean simply numbers, but what Paul talks about here, gospel growth. And if that's the case, we need to ask, what does gospel growth look like? And how does it happen? And those are the two points today as we look at the, this opening section of Colossians. Number one, what does gospel growth look like? And number two, how does gospel growth happen? And so first, what does gospel growth Look like, and we, we get a picture of it here in verses three to five. Paul highlights two marks of gospel growth in this opening Thanksgiving section, and, and those two marks are, are very simple faith and love. That's what gospel growth looks like a, a deepening faith in Jesus Christ and a growing love for his people. And, and first, in verse four, faith. Faith. Paul, Paul gives thanks, he says, because since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, faith is one of those words that's come to mean something almost completely different than what Paul means and what the New Testament means by faith. You know, Mark Twain said that faith is believing what you know ain't so. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just kind of this ridiculous belief with no basis in reality. Or more commonly, you know, faith, the, the way it gets talked about is just this, it's this nebulous thing. 
You know, kind of this, this force we can tap into to make things happen. You know, your, your favorite football team is, is losing in the fourth quarter, and the fans are told to just have faith. Just believe. Or, or kids are promised that, that they can be anything they want to be if they just have enough faith. And when I hear that kind of thing, I, I, I'm often reminded of a, a song from the 90s, maybe you know it, titled, I Believe I Can Fly. You know, it, it's a very catchy tune, it, but it, it's a ridiculous song. And, and I'm not going to sing it for you. Maybe I just need to have enough faith that I could do that well. But, but the, one of the lines in the song says, If I can see it, then I can do it. If I just believe it, there's nothing to it. And then the chorus, I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch the sky. I think about it every night and day. Spread my wings and fly away. I believe I can fly, I believe I can fly, and so on. And, and you know, the, the listeners are supposed to be encouraged that, that they can do anything if they just have faith. Here's the thing. Faith is nothing. By itself, faith is, is meaningless. It's nothing uh, apart from its object. You know, you can believe that you could literally fly all you want, but if you step off the cliff and try to soar, you're in for quite a shock. You know, what matters is the object of faith, the thing in which you put your trust. And, and Paul's thankful here for their faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith as Christians. You see, as, as Christian people, we're not just interested in faith in general or in some generic sense, but, but faith in Jesus Christ, trust in Christ. And uh, we don't, we, you know, we often talk about saving faith. And we don't mean that faith is some kind of independent thing that saves us from sin. Instead, faith connects us to Jesus Christ in whom all saving power resides. You know, faith is really an empty hand. You know, the, em- the empty hand of a beggar receiving God's grace as it's held out to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul sees gospel growth in this church first because of their faith in Christ. The second mark of gospel growth is love. Paul says, not only does he thank God for their faith, but also because of the love that you have for all the saints. You see, real faith, the the kind of faith that Paul is thankful for, um, is expressed in how we live. And so you can see Paul here linking together both, both the vertical aspect of our relationship to God through Christ by faith and the, and the horizontal aspect of how that faith gets worked out in our lives. And, and namely, he highlights love for fellow Christians. And, and you know, when, when the New Testament talks about love, it's talking about more than nice feelings, right? I mean, it's great just to have pleasant feelings of, of goodwill toward others. But, but the New Testament, biblical love, is action. Is action. Is, it's doing things that promote others' well-being. It's seeking their good. You know, love in the biblical sense, in the New Testament sense, love that, that resembles Christ's love for his people, it, it's, it's 
it involves sacrifice. It involves the sacrifice of time. You know, it'll cost you money. It'll cost you energy. Love is often exhausting. And, and you know this if you've tried to love people. And, and I don't mean to say that love isn't rewarding. It is, but it's hard work. And you just think of these believers here in Colossae, a small church. You know, it, it's a growing church, but just like all the other churches in the New Testament, this is a, a small congregation. There's no way to remain anonymous. And you have people, all different kinds of people making up this church. You have rich people and poor people, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, and, and uh, you know, plenty of opportunity for misunderstanding, for um, conflict, for hurt, and yet, despite all their differences, Paul says they love each other. They love each other. And, and in later chapters, we'll see kind of what that love looks like in concrete terms. It's, it's putting aside anger. It's, it's putting aside slander, practicing compassion and kindness and being patient with each other and forgiving each other. That, that's the hard work of love. That's Christian love in action. And, and Paul is, is pointing to it here as, as evidence that the gospel has taken root in their lives. So what does gospel growth look like? If we want to be a, a church that's growing, that's experiencing gospel growth, it'll look like a deepening faith in Jesus Christ and a, a growing love for fellow Christians. Now, Paul says something very interesting here about faith and love in verse 5, if you glance down there for a moment. He says, the Colossians' faith and love spring from their hope. These qualities grow out of the soil of hope. And if you've read the New Testament, you know Paul is fond of bringing together these three qualities, this triad of virtues, faith, hope, and love. Um, he often points to them as qualities that characterize every Christian. But there's a twist here. You see, Paul uses hope here in Colossians 1, not, not for the inner attitude of hope, which is how we normally think of it, but instead for the thing hoped for. See, the, the Colossians are characterized by faith and love because of the hope laid up for them in heaven, he says. And hope here is, is shorthand. It, it's, it's a stand-in for the eternal inheritance that Christ has secured for us through his life and his death and, and resurrection. It, it's, it's shorthand for all the blessings of the gospel won for us by Christ, and, and namely bodily resurrection and fellowship with the triune God in the new creation. And I'm not going to harp on this because we, we talked about it during Advent, but the hope that Paul is, is talking about here is not the hope of going to heaven. He says this hope is laid up for us in heaven. It's in God's realm, meaning it's, it's secure, it's reserved for us, it's being kept for us by God. And when Christ returns a second time, that hope, will come from heaven to earth and, and transform us and all of creation. And of course, that, that guaranteed future, that, that hope that is safe and secure in God's presence, it produces an attitude of hope. 
And, and again, another word that gets much abused. As Christians, when we talk about hope, we don't mean some kind of shallow optimism. You know, I, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, which is just kind of a, a thing you say. Uh, Christian hope is a confident expectation. It, it's a, a certainty that God will do what he has promised to do for us in Christ. It, it's rooted in the truth of his word. And you know, we've, in recent weeks, as Craig mentioned, we've lost two members to COVID. You know, uh, brothers whom we loved and, and really enjoyed having with us. And it's unsettling. You know, our hearts are heavy. And yet, as Christians, at, at, at these men's funeral service, when their bodies are put in the ground, we talk about committing them to the grave in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that sure and certain hope of the resurrection. That, that is what Paul is talking about here. And, and ordinarily we think of faith in Christ as producing hope, but, but Paul reverses the order here. He says, um, that guaranteed future held out to us in the gospel, it strengthens our faith. It produces love in the present. And, and I've been trying to, to understand this connection uh, this past week as I've been working on the sermon. How does hope, how does the hope of, of that age to come, of the hope of bodily resurrection and, and new creation, how does that hope produce faith and, and love? And I think it comes down to this. Christian faith and love are costly. They are costly. And we don't always recognize it in, in our context, but, but for these believers in Colossae, to become Christians was costly. It meant turning their backs on the, the religion um, that their family had always practiced. It, it meant that they were going to be excluded from the family circle, maybe the, the circle of friends. Um, they certainly would have been ridiculed by their neighbors. You know, if you were a well-born citizen of Colossae, and now all of a sudden you're, you're associating with, with others in the church, Christian slaves and, and women, and, and treating them like siblings, you lose all social standing. And some of you have experienced things like that. You know, family that's turned its back on you because of your faith in Christ. Or, or you've put yourself out there trying to love someone um, and, and you've opened your home to them. You've opened your heart to them. You've sacrificed for them. And, and after all that you've done, they, they turn against you. That hope laid up for us in heaven it frees us to keep loving. It frees us to keep trusting in Christ, even when it's to our own disadvantage in the present. And, and the reason is we're not trying to live our best lives now. If that's what life was about, that I'm going to try to be as happy, as successful, as wealthy, as comfortable and healthy as I can, you wouldn't trust Christ and seek to love others for Christ's sake. You know, as Christians, though, we know this present life is not all there is. We know that God has promised us a glorious future, something better than we could ever imagine, and it, it frees us 
We no longer have to hold on to everything. We no longer have to be driven by this, this craving to get and get and get. And we can give ourselves away because Christ has given himself for us and to us. You know, people often fear that, that focusing on that future hope, you know, will cause Christians to kind of pull back and, and disengage from the world and just kind of be indifferent to the suffering of this world. And it's actually the exact opposite. Paul sees that hope, that certainty, that, that sure and, and certain hope as empowering us to live sacrificial lives. Empowering us to, to lay down our own lives in, in many practical ways for the sake of others. So Paul here gives thanks for gospel growth. And, and I think it's striking that, that gospel growth looks rather ordinary, doesn't it? I mean, it, it's easy to overlook faith and love. You know, my impulse when someone asks about our church and, you know, is your church growing? Um, my impulse is to talk about attendance, uh, to talk about financial reports. You know, um, those figures might give a clue of, about what's going on in a church, but, but the real evidence is people growing in their faith. People learning to trust Jesus Christ through the most difficult of circumstances. People growing in their love for each other. You, you remember what Jesus said in John 13. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What is he talking about? He says, if you have love for one another. You know, that kind of love doesn't come naturally to us. In fact, in verse 8, uh, Paul says uh, that this love is created by the Spirit. It's God's work in us. And, and that kind of love, it gets the world's attention. You know, Jesus doesn't say, by, by your opinions on everything conceivable under the sun, all will know that you are my disciples. He says, by your love. You know, we live in a, a divided world and our society is split into these these warring tribes each tribe is trying to to marginalize those who don't belong to it so that they can grasp power and and sadly churches often mirror the culture but but when you have a group of christians who who are unlike in many ways who come from different backgrounds different races uh, different political positions when you have them treating each other like family and I mean like a healthy, loving family. <laughs> when you have them treating each other like family, the only explanation is the gospel has taken root in their lives. And so Paul shows us that gospel growth looks like faith. It looks like love. Well, how does gospel growth happen? And we see that in the rest of the text, the end of verse 5 on through Verse 8, Paul uh, here in these verses reminds the Colossians, he reminds us how gospel growth happens. And, and it's quite simple actually. Gospel growth happens as people hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. And that's not just a, a one-time thing at your conversion. Paul talks in these verses about how the gospel has been bearing fruit ever since they heard it. In other words, it's been this ongoing reality. And so faith and love grow as we continue to grow in our understanding of the gospel. 
And as we continue to work out its implications for, for our church, for our lives, you know, we, we never really outgrow the gospel. Sometimes we have this idea that the gospel is what you need uh, when you first come to faith in Christ. And then after you've been a Christian for a while, you move on to the, the deeper things. The reality is that the longer you've been a Christian, the more you realize the gospel is bigger, it's deeper, and more wonderful than you ever imagined. And Paul says as, as we dive into those realities, growth happens. Now, gospel is one of those words. I've just used it a number of times. Gospel is one of those words we throw around a lot in in, in our church. And, and Paul himself uses it here. He says, of this hope, in verse 5, of this hope you, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. What are we talking about when we say gospel? And, and Paul here, he, he says four things about the gospel. I want to highlight them for you. He says, first, the gospel is a message. Verse 5, it's a word, the word of the truth. It's an announcement the gospel is not love your neighbor. The gospel is not be a good spouse, be an obedient child, be a good citizen, work hard at your vocation. Uh, those are all implications of the gospel, but that is not the gospel. The gospel is an announcement that Jesus is the world's true king, that you and I were hopelessly lost in sin and rebellion against God, and yet God in his love sent his son to, to give himself for us. And through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, Christ has provided forgiveness and reconciled us to God. And Paul's going to unpack those truths as we, as we continue in Colossians. But the gospel is a message about what, about what God has done for us in Christ. Second, the gospel is truth. Paul says there in verse 5, it is the word of the truth. That the gospel is ultimate truth. And that's a, a bold claim you know. today. It's not something that's popular, this idea that there is a standard of truth. But, but the gospel is the truth by which all other claims to truth are measured. It's not fantasy. It's not conjecture or, or speculation, something Paul came up with. It is truth revealed by God. Third, the gospel is about grace. You notice there at the end of verse 6, Paul reminds them that when they had heard the gospel and understood it, they had heard and understood the grace of God in truth. The, this message that comes to us, this message that is truth, it, it doesn't say do. It says receive. You know, Remember what, what we said earlier, faith is that, that empty hand receiving God's grace in the gospel. The, the gospel is a message about what God has done, what God is doing for us in Christ. And, and that doesn't mean that how we live is unimportant. You know, beginning in chapter 3, Paul's going to urge the Colossians to live in certain ways. He's going to address all kinds of areas of life, family and the workplace, relationships in the church. It's vital that we demonstrate with our lives the transforming power 
of the gospel. But, but those imperatives of chapters 3 and 4, they're all grounded in, we could say, the indicatives of the gospel that Paul unpacks in the opening chapters. You know, he says in chapter 3, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, then live this way. That's a paraphrase. The if points back to what Paul has said in the opening chapters. Not, well, maybe you were raised with Christ. He's saying, you have been united to Christ by faith. Your sins are forgiven. You have eternal life. And because of that, here's how you want to live. So the gospel is about grace. Fourth, the gospel is effective. It's effective. It's powerful. It's the powerful gospel of God's Son that has the power to transform human lives. You you look again at what Paul says in verse 6. He says, This gospel has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Really interesting here. Paul, in a sense, personifies the gospel. It's this thing that's come to the Colossians like a messenger. And then he even pictures it as a, as a living thing, maybe a, a tree or a vine that produces fruit and grows. And you see that language there of, of bearing fruit and increasing. Where have you heard that kind of thing before? It's really echoing the the book of Genesis. Genesis 1, God commissions the animal kingdom to be fruitful and multiply. And then he he gives that same commission to Adam and Eve, and then later to Noah. And then that that theme gets picked up in God's promises to Abraham. And and so Paul sees here in, in the work of the gospel, in the gospel bearing fruit in the lives of men and women who have received it, he sees God's plan for the life of the world being realized now through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and the thing Paul highlights here is that the gospel, the the word of God about Jesus Christ, it has inherent power to produce fruit in people's lives. And that's a good reminder for those of us who preach and teach God's word. Um, Maybe for those of you who teach Sunday school, those of you who preach at the retirement home, those of you who, who counsel others or just try to share God's Word with others, you know, sometimes you can wonder if, if all your preparation, all your study, all the effort you've expended to bring God's Word to someone is having any effect. You know, sometimes you, you're sharing with somebody and they just have this look on their face like, what in the world are you saying? Paul shows us here the power to change lives is in the gospel. It's not our preparation. It's not our eloquence. It's not our theological knowledge or or passion. As good as all those things are, the gospel not only saves, it bears fruit in people's lives as they receive it by faith. And so Paul highlights the gospel. and, And back to this question, how? does gospel growth happen? How does the gospel do this? Paul says in in verse 5, we might even overlook it, says, you heard the gospel. You heard the gospel. And that implies someone proclaimed it. And we see here in this passage, in their case, Epaphras, Paul's colleague came and and preached the gospel to them, he says in verse 7. They heard and they understood what they heard. 
And, and God doesn't bypass the human mind. You know, he works on the human mind, not around the human mind. They, they heard the message of the gospel. They believed that what they, heard, what they heard was true, and they trusted Christ. And that gospel began shaping their lives. See, what Paul's describing here is ordinary means of grace ministry. Ordinary means of grace ministry. As the gospel is faithfully preached, and as we respond in faith, God produces growth. Uh, we've said this numerous times, but it's, it's always a good reminder. That is why preaching is so central in our ser- Sunday gatherings. You know, it's not just because Craig and I, or I should say, it's not because Craig and I think that, that we can wow people with our delivery. If that's what you're looking for, prepare to be disappointed. <laughs> We devote 40, 45 minutes to hearing God's word proclaimed because this is how God has promised to work. This is where God has promised to meet us and produce this good growth, this good fruit. You know, if you think about it, preaching isn't flashy. It never has been. I mean, even back in Paul's day, but especially in ours. You know, most people don't sit around and think, hey, what are we going to do this weekend? You know, let's go sit down for an hour and listen to someone preach at us. Uh, you know, there are many other things we could do as a church that, that would be more exciting. You know, we could show a film about faith. You know, it can be a Christian film. We could show a Christian film. We could put on a play or a, or a Christian concert. You know, we could hold a raffle. You know, there, there are churches that do those, <laughs> do that kind of thing to bring people in. And, and those things, I guarantee you, were, are, will get people's attention and hold people's attention uh, much more effectively than one person standing behind a pulpit speaking. But God doesn't promise to work through those means. He uses ordinary means. And, and it's not limited to our Sunday gatherings. You know, Sundays are primary but, but God also works when ordinary believers share God's word with each other, when they try to help each other with, the, with gospel truth. And you know, that's what we want to see happening here at Grace Bible Church in, in, in our small groups, in our home groups, and, and other gatherings. We, we want to see men and women gathered around the gospel, helping each other see how the gospel um, intersects with their lives, helping them, them apply it to the, the things they're dealing with. And, and sadly, this is the thing that's often missing from, from small groups, whatever kind of small group it might be. You know, that small groups tend to lean towards either merely Bible study or merely socializing. And, and both of those things are good in their place. But, but what happens is we can come to Bible study and learn about the Bible, you know, facts and dates and, and bits of history, but we don't learn how the gospel speaks to us personally, how it addresses the kinds of things we struggle with. Or, if it's not Bible study, you know, it, it's, we, we sit down and we talk about what's been going on in our lives, how the week has been going, and we maybe even pray about a few of those things, but we don't let the gospel speak to the hard issues that the circumstances have unearthed. Gospel growth happens when 
we together, as brothers and sisters in Christ, come to God's Word and, and, and let it address us and, and help each other see, you know, here's, where, here's how God is at work in your life. Here's where the Gospel speaks to your fears. Here's, here's how it addresses your anger. Here's how it, here's how it helps with your doubts. That, that is the, the means God uses to produce Gospel growth. And so just as, as Paul could give thanks for gospel growth in Colossae, you know, we, Grace Bible Church here in Escondido, we, we can be confident that, that God is producing gospel growth. He's still at work in, in the world, in Escondido, here in, in this church. You know, these, these past two years have not put a pause on gospel growth. Maybe, maybe it's felt like that. Maybe sometimes it's difficult to, to see where that growth is happening. But the gospel, we have the assurance from God's word, it's bearing fruit and increasing among us. And, and as we conclude this morning, I, I want to invite you to respond to, to what God is doing through the gospel in just three simple ways. Uh, this is very basic. I, I won't spend lots of time on it, but, but three ways to respond to what God is doing in us through the gospel. One, pray for gospel growth. Pray for gospel growth. Pray it for the church, for Grace Bible Church. Pray it for yourself, your family, your friends. Pray that our faith would be more firmly fixed on Jesus Christ. That you know, that theme verse that I mentioned, or verses that I mentioned earlier from chapter 2, that, that would be a good thing to pray. That, that you, that your church would be rooted in Christ and established in the faith. And, and next week we'll see that that's exactly what Paul does as he prays for the Colossians. He prays that they would be growing in their understanding of, of God, who he is, and his will, and that they would bear fruit. So pray for growth. Uh, second, look for gospel growth. You know, it, it, it's easy, and maybe I'm just speaking as a, as a pastor here, but I think it's true for most of us. It's easy to fixate on what's wrong in the church, isn't it? Um, you know, the, it's easy to focus on the problems, the disappointments, the frustrations. It takes more effort to train your eyes to see gospel growth. Yeah, it's a lot like you know those of you who garden. You have these plants in your garden, and and at times it might not seem like anything's happening, right? Especially if you're looking at at those plants multiple times throughout the day. <laughs> the the growth is slow and incremental. Over time, it, it's a big transformation, and, and the same is true with gospel growth. It, it takes work to to see it, and I want to encourage you to be on the lookout for it. You know, God is, is doing more among us than we realize. And, and you'll be encouraged when you see it. And then third, give thanks for gospel growth. And that's what Paul does here as he looks at the Colossians and sees a, a growing faith and a growing love. He gives thanks to God because God is ultimately the source of, of this growth. It's his life-giving gospel that is producing the, the good fruit of faith and love. And so as you, as you pray for growth and you look for growth, give thanks when you see it. 
You know, thank God in prayer. Thank God publicly for what you see him doing. And, and I would say even encourage each other when you see growth in each other. That's a way to celebrate God's grace. That's a way to give him thanks. You know, just send a, a text or a, an email and let them know you see God at work in their life. Now, I don't know about you, but I excel at grumbling it, my my practice of giving thanks to God could use some work. And, and Paul shows us here that, that we have so much to give thanks for. The, the grace of Jesus Christ has broken into our lives. It's taken root into in our lives. And now that same gospel is, is transforming us. It, it's growing us into people who, who trust God more fully. Who, who love each other uh, uh, in, more, in a more Christ-like way. And, and God is growing us, forming us into gospel people. And so pray for growth, look for growth, and give thanks to God for growth. L- let's pray and, and do that. Our God and Father, we thank you for the, the glorious gospel of your Son, this message of of grace, this message of your love that has rescued us from from sin and eternal damnation, has given us new life, has given us a solid hope and a a new family to belong to. We thank you for our all-sufficient Savior, and we pray that as we continue to look at Colossians, that you would root our faith more firmly in Jesus Christ, that you would stir up within us a greater love for your people, and that in all of this, Lord, you would be glorified as your people give you thanks for what you're doing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.